You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Sagar Sadegian. Today on the program, we'll be speaking about the African diaspora in late Ottoman Izmir. Uh, as many of our listeners will know, there is a, a large African, uh, a, a history of a large African diaspora in the Mediterranean basin as a result of not only the global slave trade, but other migrations, as we'll be talking about. Uh, and Izmir, in, indeed, is one of the foremost places in the former Ottoman Empire where we uh, see uh, an African diaspora community arising. Uh, our guest today on the podcast is a scholar who completed his PhD dissertation on this subject, Dr. Michael Ferguson. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Gilda Letterman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition here at Yale University, where we're recording. Uh, and he has his PhD from McGill University, so a fine product of uh, one of Canada's many fine institutions of higher learning. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me, and thank you to Sagar for joining in this conversation today. We're very happy to have you here. And this is going to be a very nice compliment to some of our prior conversations on the podcast that have dealt with uh, the subject of slavery and always in an implicitly uh, global perspective, in fact. And Mm -hmm. of course, it's quite normal thinking of how heavily the issue of slavery weighs on the historiography of, say, the Atlantic world or Mm -hmm. uh, the colonial world, uh, that the subject... um, should be discussed in a very global manner. But what I like about your research that we'll be discussing is it really focuses on in on a local situation mm-hmm. in the Ottoman Empire, one region of the Ottoman Empire, and issues surrounding not only uh, enslaved and emancipated Africans in the Izmir region, but also um, the legacy of, of those communities during the late Ottoman period in modern Turkey up to this day. So, Mike, when our listeners think of Izmir, they might think uh, in the Ottoman period especially, they'll think of a vibrant Greek community. Uh, they'll think of a vibrant, a vibrant commercial scene, mm-hmm. um, modern cosmopolitan urban life, mm-hmm. uh, cotton agriculture. Um, but they might not think of uh, an African diaspora. Mm-hmm. Tell us how you got to this subject. Uh, great question, Chris. Uh, and actually, you hit on one of the, the key words that drew me to the topic, which is uh, cosmopolitanism. In looking at the history of Izmir, you do find it largely focused on the kind of elite Levantine community, the trading community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there's many, many books. If you go to any bookstore, you'll, you'll see a, a book on this topic. And I began to wonder, who are the people you know, behind the scenes, you know, working in the lower classes, mm-hmm. the marginalized, kind of making yeah. this happen? Okay. Um, and at the same time, um, I was doing reading on um, African slavery, yeah. of course, uh, Ehud Toledano and Hakan Erdem's works on the topic. And I started to feel that uh, both of their uh, excellent scholarship focuses largely on Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And I began to wonder about what, what's happening with African slavery elsewhere in the empire. Mm-hmm. And so these kind of two forces led me to start zoning in on the topic of African slavery in Izmir. And and the clincher was when I began to learn about the fact that there is an active African diaspora in Izmir today. I mean, this is a really fascinating point about the history of slavery in the Ottoman Empire because... 
Uh, you know, in the in the story of uh, gradual uh, emancipation and abolition, uh, one mm-hmm. of the things that is kind of forgotten is that the descendants of emancipated slaves are with us to the present and have kind of influenced mm-hmm. the social social fabric uh, of the post-Ottoman Empire. Um, so before we get to that subject, maybe you can give us an overview about um, the history, uh, both, both of slavery and of African diasporas in the Ottoman Empire uh, through the lens of, of your study of Izmir. Well, uh, as most people know, uh, African slavery has long existed uh, in the Ottoman Empire and, and as a result in Izmir. And this is largely uh, a result of the uh, desire for people to acquire uh, slaves either as domestic service uh, as servants or mm-hmm. wives. So um, roughly two-thirds of the trade is uh, female, we can say. Mm-hmm. And by the 19th century, you've got uh, two different streams uh coming from Africa and the other from the Caucasus, the, mm-hmm. the Circassians, if we can call them that. Yeah. And they have largely, we can say, different functions in a household, uh, the Africans being largely for, for domestic service uh, as a kind of a working underclass, yeah. whereas uh, the Circassians would be brought in uh, potentially as, as concubines or wives and raised uh, to kind of help uh, grow the size of the, the household through the children. Mm-hmm. And specifically with the question of Izmir in the 19th century, uh, in the late 19th century, it's interesting because I argue that um, Izmir had the uh, largest proportion of Africans in the late Ottoman Empire for a, a, a large city. Um, That's excluding Egypt. Egypt right. and probably Istanbul as well, but there's kind mm-hmm. of so many people that are there we can't um, distinguish yeah. them as easily. And this is, is largely because there's a, a labor demand in Izmir at mm-hmm. this time. And um, as well, there is a, a plan brought forth by Abdul Hamid II's government to move emancipated slaves to Izmir to fill this uh, labor uh gap in the late period. And that's very interesting because uh, you see a similar thing with emancipated Circassians, for example, attempts to settle um, emancipated uh, Circassians in various parts of -hmm. of Anatolia as part of a larger Ottoman um, immigrant settlement policy. Right. But uh, we forget that that Africans are also part of that picture. Right. So uh, the prohibition of the slave trade uh, officially comes in 1857. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's from that point uh, that um, the British, working with Ottoman officials, begin policing the trade. The kind of ironic uh, twist is that in around the third quarter of the 19th century is actually where the African slave trade to the Ottoman Empire reaches its climax. In numeric terms, you mean? Yeah, climax. And we're, we're estimating around 17,000 P- uh, Africans a year are being brought to the empire wow. in that period. Yeah. And for the 19th century as a whole, roughly in what is the entire Ottoman Empire, not just Anatolia, about a a million to 1.3 million Africans uh, were brought into the Ottoman Empire at this time. And so based on what I understand from the history, the African slave trade in the Ottoman Empire continues longer than the Black Sea Caucasus uh, slave trade, which is, is... as far as I understand, abolished earlier. Is that not the case? Or? Yeah. So I guess the way to look at this is there is, uh, you know, kind of the de jure and de facto ways mm-hmm. of looking at things. 
certainly uh, the Ottoman Empire never abolished slavery itself. Yeah. Uh, slavery remained entirely legal until the new Turkish Republic uh, signed a, a League of Nations uh, treaty uh, formally abolishing slavery. So it's really difficult to look closely at, you know, whether something verging on a slave-like, you know, uh, relationship would continue on uh, beyond that legal period. My guess is that uh, given that usually Africans are in a more marginal position in society, they probably uh, continued on uh, in greater numbers as slaves mm -hmm. than Circassians. However, um, I'm really not the one to, to speak about uh, Circassian slavery. Perhaps uh, my colleague, uh, Jada Karamarsal, mm -hmm. might be someone you could talk to. Yeah, about we look forward Circassian to talking slavery. to Jada at some point. I mean, so this is very interesting. We have this story of, on one hand, you know, in the world and on the books, slavery is being banned or limited uh, and, and banished from modern legal institutions. But at the same time, you say there's really this climax in total volume mm -hmm. uh, of uh, the slave trade in the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. So... There's a bit of danger in overemphasizing that because um, the British who were leading the kind of anti-slave trade mm -hmm. movement, they kind of yeah, were focusing on Africans as slaves. Mm -hmm. And as as we know by the 19th century, other sources of slaves uh, that the Ottomans historically drew upon, like the Balkans, were no mm -hmm. longer available to them. So perhaps it's just a matter of. Um, Africa being a greater portion of that um, annual slave intake mm -hmm. uh, as the as the 19th century went on. Mm -hmm. So uh, somebody you know who's able to crunch some numbers might might you know uh, look into that closer. But I'm not that person. Okay. <laughs> Did you find any kind of documents about smuggling slaves yeah. after the abolition of uh, slavery? Yes. In fact. Um, the, the Ottoman archives and British archives are, are littered with uh, such uh, tales. Um, I was able to um, reconstruct the story of one particular slave ship using, uh, I was fortunate to find the same slave ship in both British and Ottoman archives. Mm. And uh, this is a slave ship with roughly, roughly 20 slaves on it uh, in the late 1870s. And as the, the we know the story because the co-captain of the ship, um, when they were caught by the British, told uh, in a large deposition exactly what had been happening. They initially tried to go to Salonika, one of the other main Ottoman ports, to to sell the slaves, but uh, finding no uh, you know pirates or or boatmen who were able to guide them in surreptitiously at night, they moved on to to Izmir. And uh, they, were ma they managed to land uh, slaves outside of Izmir uh, in what is uh, Focha today. Mm -hmm. uh, after moving some of them off the boat, they were caught the next day. I guess they had parked in the port and the British and Ottoman officials raided them. Um, they found slaves in essentially what is the ballast uh, section of the boat. This is a small wooden dhow with a sail and uh, rescued these people from there. Mm, wow. So it gives you like a picture of, of mm -hmm. what this uh, experience of trafficked people in the Ottoman Empire looked like during this time. Yeah. And Izmir had a formal slave market in what is roughly today uh, Kemer Alta, uh, which is the Kemer bazaar. Alta, right? Right to the end of the Ottoman period? or uh, So the... 
Istanbul slave market is closed in 1847, which is mm. kind of the first act that they take before prohibiting the slave trade. Um, but I argue that these other regional um, slave markets, because there's not a lot of you know eyes on the ground, British travelers, yeah. government officials looking at these things, that they continued long afterwards. And I, I was able to reconstruct the history of the Izmir slave market, which goes until around 1870, mm -hmm. formally. Yeah. And then after that, um, they are sold in private households or other kinds of markets around the city. That's very fascinating. And it does, I mean, just to point out that this is, you know, not just an Ottoman story. Uh, if I can plug the work of a former guest, Sohal Ashi, uh, who works on... Um, slavery in French Algeria and and, mm. and much in the case of the Ottoman Empire uh, slavery in the French metropole mm -hmm. is is uh, abolished well before uh, the trade is either formally abolished or in practice uh, uh, in the case of Algeria so uh, that's a fascinating parallel in some regards mm -hmm. that Istanbul is mere comparison yeah and uh, it's funny that you say uh, Algeria because one of the sites where slaves were reported to have been sold after the closing of the slave market is the Jazair Han uh, mm. in uh, in Kemeralta market. Ah, so the so the, the to to get this clear for our listeners, the the place where slave trade continues in Izmir has the name Algeria. Yeah. In or in G Algeria That's market. That's right. In yeah. Very so there's some connection there, which I, I did not fully uh, explore, but. Uh, there's a connection there. There's a reason why they're being sold at that particular hmm. place. Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Sorar Saldarian here speaking with Dr. Michael Ferguson about his research on uh, the African diaspora Thank you. Uh, in Ottoman and post-Ottoman Izmir. Um, so let's get down into the details about mm -hmm. life in Izmir. You've already given us the sense that it's a complicated story during the late 19th century, mm -hmm. that we have the endurance of practices of, of slavery, but at the same time you have emancipated people, mm -hmm. uh, Africans in this region who are... Uh, indeed not uh, mm -hmm. enslaved. So it's, it's a more complex picture than just a, a question of an enslaved community. Yeah. So could you give us a, more of a, a textured glimpse at the life of um, Africans uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in Izmir during this late Ottoman period and, and into the Republican period? Okay. Um, I should say that uh, the difference in the history of uh abolition in this period is whereas previously it was the responsible responsibility of, of masters to emancipate their slaves they would then um, maintain a connection with that household and would maybe provide some economic benefit to that household mm -hmm. in this period we have a change to um, state-driven emancipation uh, the Ottoman state and and, and British uh, state are intervening uh, so-called rescuing uh, people mm -hmm. giving them um, freedom papers and many of them, probably the majority, are just uh, absorbed into households as if they were uh, operating in the old system. But some are kind of left to their own devices, largely in the port cities of the Ottoman Empire. And you begin to see the emergence of African communities in 
large Ottoman port cities, uh, Salonika, Izmir, Istanbul, of course, and then uh, also on Crete and Hanya. Uh, and these, these are urban enclaves, or do you have rural communities as well as a result of this? There is rural uh, enclaves, but they might have a separate story. Uh, but largely, these these urban uh, enclaves are are on the, the literal margins of the city, mm-hmm. kind of spatially uh, representing their position uh, in the society. Mm-hmm. And one of the fascinating things that we know about this, these communities across the, uh, the Ottoman Empire is that they celebrated uh, an annual festival, mm-hmm. uh, which in Izmir was called Dana Bayrama, or the Calf Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before I get to uh, discussing the Calf Festival, it is important to say that uh, Africans had long existed uh, in and around Izmir. Indeed, we have... Uh, documentation from uh, uncovered by Saraya Faruqi uh, many mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, as early as the 16th century, there was Africans uh, in uh, Aydin uh, province of the uh, Izmir now. And we have villages of people who are descendant of Africans outside of Izmir mm-hmm. today. And their history, um, it's complicated and there's really, uh, it's difficult to uh, understand, but... Um, my sense is is this is where the labor demand was uh, was you know concentrated in the late nineteenth century. So these are agricultural laborers, probably. Yeah, most likely. Um, and whether they found their way out there as as a source of employment as as free free Africans, mm-hmm. or uh, we also do have evidence that the state was uh, placing people out there, mm-hmm. and in some instances forcefully marrying couples uh, to create a kind of a sharecropping family system and it it, it bears mention that the the main the main items in Izmir are mm-hmm. one of them is cotton yeah uh, ever since the American Civil War as as you probably mm-hmm. know Chris yeah. uh, the uh, the demand for other sources of cotton worldwide uh, you know is explored in in Egypt uh, and in Anatolia and uh, so I believe they they begin bringing. There was an indigenous form of cotton there, but uh, they begin bringing the uh, Egyptian um, yeah. type of cotton and, and attempt to plant it uh, uh, in Izmir's hinterland. So um, it's not yet clear whether these people were directly working on you know we can say kind of plantation labor in, in some kind of sharecropping form mm-hmm. or, or near slavery form, mm-hmm. but certainly these villages outside of Izmir today uh, that exist around uh, Tire, Torbala, uh, Bayender, Udemish are amongst the most marginalized in in the region mm-hmm. uh, historically. Uh, so that is actually. A separate history which uh, does need more exploration. Mm -hmm. Talking about these communities that we have even nowadays in Mm -hmm. the area, I wonder uh, how the question of identity refers to these populations. Uh, And I I would like to know if they know themselves more African than Turkish or Ottoman Mm -hmm. or not. Right. Right. That's a and to follow up on that, like I mean, this is an important question and, and trying to document um, mm-hmm. the African slave trade in the Ottoman Empire is that if emancipated uh, Africans are Muslims, they kind of disappear into the, at least into the record, but maybe right. not on the ground. So maybe you could elaborate on that local identity situation. Yeah. So um, as, as, as you know, the, uh, the Ottoman Empire did not keep a track systematically of ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, these Africans were immediately uh, registered as Muslims 
uh, in in census records, and uh, for that reason, um, one scholar Esma Durugunu um, has said uh, at this point they become invisible. Uh, so there's an invisibility of Africans in the archives. I've I've had the same experience when trying to track what happens to um, sedentarized tribal communities in the Ottoman Empire. It's the same kind of tension, right? They stop yeah. referring to them as uh, by those names, and they kind of disappear. Yeah, as if. Um, Putting them in that category makes them uh, simply, you know, an Ottoman Muslim. Which, uh, of course, must not have been the case, right? <laughs> Indeed. So uh, one of the ways that we can uh, get at the, the history of, of Africanness or African identity in the late Ottoman Empire is doing oral history interviews or mm. looking at memoirs yeah. uh, of people who have written about their experience. And this um, is incredibly important uh, We uh, in... 2005, a man named Mustafa Olpak published a book, which is uh, a family history uh, of his family's experience in uh, slavery and in the late Ottoman Empire and uh, their experiences in the 20th century in the Turkish Republic. Oh, wow. He's originally from Ayvalık, just north of... Uh, yeah, so one of these littoral communities. Yeah, right, uh, from Izmir. Uh, and he traces his, uh, his family's history to Crete, uh, originally, so they came to Ivaluk as part of the population exchange, uh, and his family was enslaved on on Crete. It seems. Yeah. Wow. So his book, this family memoir, um, to be honest, it's one of the reasons I study what I study. It inspired me, um, and it was at the time uh, in Turkey, two thousand six, two thousand seven. It was a period of uh, potential EU candidateship and. Uh, kind of different groups beginning to explore their identities yeah. uh, in Turkey. And um, he was supported by the Turkish state in his activities. Uh, they made a documentary, uh, largely interviews of him, Ehud Toledano, and Hakan Erdem about, his, uh, about this book and his family's history. And it's, it's remarkable. Uh, right now it's really hard to find, um, which is, is, is something else. But going... Forward, he had support from UNESCO and the Slave Root Project mm -hmm. and the European Union and organized a, uh African uh, association, uh, a community association that was originally based in Ivaluk, uh and has since moved to Izmir. And he is kind of at the center of uh, – he's the, he's the spark for the uh, – community, the African Afro-Turk community right. in Izmir today. Uh, he's their lead community organizer. And uh, it's through, as a result of his work largely, that um, people are gathering around him and having conferences and talking about their Afro-Turkishness really for the first time in public. Mm. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned this in, in light of, you know, sort of the liberal moment we had there during the early 2000s, because it reminds mm -hmm. me of, you know, during the 70s, Turkey lived a kind of similar moment in some regard, culturally. Mm -hmm. You had a lot of this kind of exploration uh, of non-hegemonic identities and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I mean, one of the most intriguing artifacts of that period uh, for me is this uh, vinyl recording that I found one day of, uh, it's, I mean, it's widespread, but it's of uh, Esmeray, who is an Afro-Turk mm, uh, performer. Yeah. And she has this song, it's called Onuch Buchuk, if people want to look it up, but it's actually about the experience 
uh, of Afro-Turks and, and, and sort of the experience of racism in Turkish society, which is a very strange thing to find in like pop music recording for the period. But you see how these things kind of burst mm-hmm. to the fore all of a sudden and you realize that there's this unexplored issue of subaltern identity that's kind of been buried yeah. uh, in earlier times. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, in the, in the mid 2000s, we had um, an opening um, of a discussion about uh, Armenian history in, Tur- uh, in yep. Turkey, Kurdish, Kurdish history in Tur- identity, Turkey. Yep. Even Circassian groups are beginning to organize. Yes, they are. Absolutely. Um, and and kind of the Afro-Turk movement was part of that. I'm comparing the situation of the Africans in Iran, and I there we can see lots of traces of uh, their origins in music, their clothes, uh, you know, the lifestyle in some ways, mm-hmm. and even a part of the languages still exist after all these uh, yeah, centuries. Right. And I wonder if you have the same experience with the Africans in Izmir or in Turkish yeah. society. Um, I guess in a short answer, no. Uh, and it's largely because of the um, the Turkish Republic's um, focus is on, on the the kind of uh, the state's vision of what Turkishness is. Uh, that really limited discussion in the 20th century about kind of these alternate identities. Mm-hmm. Um, that's you know the the classic example of, of what happened uh, in the early Republic is the. Uh, Vatandash Turkçe Konuş Citizen Speak Turkish program, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, where people were asked to report on their neighbors if they were speaking uh, different languages, uh, report them to authorities. So in that kind of climate, people existing in the most marginalized, uh, you know, sections of, of society, you know, their the opportunity for them to publicly express right. their their difference is, is not there. So what you're saying is that these these identities have to remain in the margin uh, and maybe certain cultural influences don't make it into the mainstream national culture right. uh, of 20th century Turkey. Yeah, and that's what, what makes them so fascinating is, is how do people with divergent identities from the state-approved vision of, yeah. of, of who is a Turk uh, – you know, keep Transmit, their yeah, yeah keep their, their stories, their culture alive. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mustafa Olpak, who I, I talked about earlier, uh, does say in his book that it was really uh, his grandparents who related through uh, oral uh, mm-hmm. oral culture. You know, the, their their story of enslavement. He details yeah. it. Uh, the experiences of his uh, grandparents uh, of enslavement on Crete, uh, and uh, other families are, are doing the same thing. But I think. Um, it's just now that these things are being talked about uh, in in public space uh, instead of whereas in the 20th century it was in private behind closed doors. So uh, one of the things Mustafa Olpak has done is he's uh, begun uh, recreating a festival called the Calf Festival, mm-hmm. and uh, this is very interesting because. Um, it is actually a historical festival that the African uh, enslaved and emancipated African community of late Ottoman Izmir celebrated annually from, we know, around 1860 onwards. Mm-hmm. And the last um, record we have is uh, 
under the Greek occupation uh, in 1919, 1919, roughly. Interesting. Uh, so in this period, um, Africans formed a, uh, a neighborhood uh, atop the hill, Kadefe uh, Kale or Mount Pegasus, um, and there they celebrated uh, in May every year a, a three-day festival that happened over three different weeks. And the most important element of this festival um, is uh, processions that occurred on all three days. Uh, the first day, the procession would go through the streets of, of Izmir, uh, singing reportedly in African languages, playing uh, cymbals, shaking gourds, and led by the uh, female priestess or hmm. leader of the community, uh, known as a godia. And they would be uh, collecting um, donations for the festival that would happen the next week. So uh, the second day of this festival, uh, they would use the money that they had pooled together uh, to buy a calf, uh, presumably a young calf. And often different neighborhoods uh, uh, bought the calves themselves, and it was kind of a competitive thing. Uh, and it seems that they, they dressed them up, and there was some kind of playful jesting in between the different communities. Mm. You know, my, our calf is better than your calf, uh, that kind of thing. So they would then uh, decorate the calf and... and uh, once again lead it through the streets of Izmir. Then on the third uh, day, of, the final day of the festival, uh, the calf would once again be led through the streets of Izmir by one group, and another group would be meeting atop Kadefe Kale uh, at what is, I believe, uh, identified today as, as the tomb of St. Polycarp or Yusuf Dede. Uh, and there they would... Uh, have essentially like uh, festival grounds. They would mm -hmm. make preparations for a large number of people to come. The calf would eventually wind its way through the streets to this this tomb of Yusuf Dede or St. Polycarp, uh, where it would be sacrificed. Yeah. Uh, each of the participants in the um, festival would mark each other with the blood of the calf, and then it would be cooked, and uh, following which uh, there would be... Um, Ceremonial dances, uh, which we don't know a lot about, uh, and uh, the party would go well into the night. And you're saying there's there's actually sources from the Ottoman period that talk about this being part of the living urban culture of Izmir and the way that like Easter celebrations and whatnot would also take place. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, actually, one of them is uh, Halit Zio Şakalıgil, uh, kind of uh, one of the legends of of late Ottoman early Turkish uh, mm. literature. Uh, reportedly witnessed this uh, event himself. Um, all of the accounts are from outside of the community, so we need to kind of you sure, know yeah. um, be aware of that. But it, it does appear that this festival, uh, I argue, was kind of ingrained in the the culture of of festivals of late Ottoman Izmir, mm. uh, and that many non-African people would would come and, and just watch as a you know as, as an object of curiosity uh, every May kind of go to Kadefe Kale to watch this these Africans do this wow. uh, festival uh, that's very interesting because it reminds me the ceremony of Tsar in, in mm -hmm. Iran that mm -hmm. is originally from Africa and it's a kind of religious r ritual yes and is a it has a kind of healing function right as you said it's about dancing and going through all ceremonies to remove a kind of evil yeah. wind from inside of the body i wonder if you can find any kind of relationship with 
in these. So, uh, can I ask more about that? Like, where is this? Um, does this still this is still present today in Iran? Yeah, it is. It is in the south of Iran, especially mm-hmm. in Bandar Abbas and the yeah. areas that you have African societies, uh, African Iranian societies. You can see this ceremony very strongly uh, practiced, and uh, as uh, some similarities, you have a woman as a religious leader mm-hmm. yeah. and she guides the whole ceremony and yeah it it maybe takes it it sometimes it takes about a week to finish mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. it's it's with music and dancing and going through the rituals yeah to just remove the a kind of illness that they believe comes from a kind of wind mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's almost striking when you describe it because uh, I could say it's almost exactly the same uh, for the community in Izmir. Um, it was uh, Toledano, I believe, was the one who kind of uh, concretely showed that it was uh, Zar coming out of East Africa, largely up the Sudan uh, into Egypt and then into the Mediterranean basin in the 19th century, coming with uh, enslaved Africans that we see in the uh, community in Izmir or uh, just the same in, in the Istanbul community. There, the, the, the leader of the community is either known as the Godia, just like in Izmir, or a Kolbasha. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. But um, yes, uh, this woman, uh, I called her uh, a priestess, uh, but she's also kind of the community leader in many ways. And uh, it is her duty to um, communicate with the spirits of largely the women inflicted in the community w- uh, with spirits. Uh, and as far as I understand, it's not a matter of um, uh, removing the spirits or removing the curse, uh, but uh, making the spirits happy. Um, and often these spirits um, would uh, be afflicting women who were dealing with kind of real life problems, uh, perhaps uh, a miscarriage or, you know, unable to become pregnant, uh, uh, problems within the home, uh, inability to find employment. These kinds of things might have been expressed through uh, the problems with the spirit. Mm. Um, I had a very uh, fortunate experience in Izmir to interview a, a very old woman who uh, met one of these priestesses uh, in her childhood and in the, in the late uh, 1920s. Mm. Uh, as a child, she related to me, uh, and she still lives in this uh, neighborhood uh, atop Kadefe Kale, that uh, her and her brother were brought uh, to the um, Godia uh, one day before the festival. And uh, there they sat uh, in front of a fire, and opposite them was the uh, the Godia looking into the fire. And the Godia read their fortunes for their lives. Um, and when the Godia looked into the fire for her, she related to me. Um, she began to uh, kind of flap, flap her arms like like wings and, and, and coo like a dove, like coo, coo. And it was interpreted that... Um, this meant that she was uh, going to have a very beautiful singing voice in her later life and also um, sleep a lot, in- interestingly, which uh, she related to me turned out to be true. And, huh. and in fact, the day that I went to interview her, uh, I arrived at the house and she was sleeping. Um, 
Um, and for her brother, who was sitting next to her, the Godia looked into the fire and uh, began to kind of flail her arms and, and act erratically. And this was interpreted as uh, he was going to have problems with alcohol in his later life. And this, uh, she related to me, also turned out to be true. So there's a, like a, a spiritual element uh, that is totally different than, you know, I think what most people think about uh, happening in, in Izmir at this time. Either maybe uh, Orthodox Christians, uh, mm-hmm. Greeks in Izmir, or uh, uh, Muslims practicing kind of the, the state-sponsored version of, of Islam. Uh, right, the orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which obscures the reality of maybe some uh, more popular culture, folk culture elements, yeah. indeed, not only among these African diaspora communities, but a lot of other communities in the re- and region. Once I began to do some digging on this this tomb of Saint Polycarp mm-hmm. or Yusuf Dede, where I uh, where the, they seem to have finished the festival, it has two names because it was revered both by the Christian community as the tomb of St. Polycarp, an early Christian martyr who mm-hmm. had reportedly died on that spot. Um, and also the tomb of Yusuf Dede, who was believed to be involved uh, in the conquest of uh, Izmir by the Ottomans and had, had, had died there uh, during the conquest. Mm. So this tomb, I do have records that it was used actively both by Christians and Muslims in the late Ottoman period. And then uh, the Africans began to use it for their own purposes as well. And it seems to, um, the reason they were able to do this, I think, is through Sufism. Uh, The kind of, the practices of Sufism welcoming people with kind of different practices and beliefs Uh into, uh, as a a way to get, you know, into Islam. Um, This was the key way in which they were uh, able to be there. And indeed, uh, we have some reports that the the Bekji, or the the man who kind Mm -hmm. of watched over the the tomb by the end of the 19th century was an African man himself. Mm. You've established a really interesting connection there between um, the cultural legacy of of African diaspora from the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey and the broader suppression uh, of mysticism and Sufism in Mm -hmm. the Republican period, which uh, apparently uh, is related to the suppression uh, of African culture as well, at least to the extent that it uh, is, you know, simultaneous. Right. Um, and uh, this tomb uh, becomes subject to the the prohibition on 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 Sufism that occurs yeah. in the early Republic, uh, and it's consequently closed. I think it's 1925, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and that is really the point in which all kind of uh, so-called heterodox f- practices become illegal yeah. in in public space, and. Uh, I, I did some some research on what exactly happens to the tomb because it's not there today. And as far as I can tell, um, the property was seized by the Turkish state, and then eventually uh, the Turkish state uh, ceded the uh, uh, the properties of these of these tombs to the municipalities in which they uh, were located in. Mm-hmm. Following which, uh, in the late or early 19 late 1920s or early 1930s the uh, municipality of Izmir uh, bulldozed the tomb and, and built uh, what stands there today which is uh, in Kilapokulu or revolution school an mm. elementary school mm. 
And so to get back to this, uh, you know, from your sort of m- the layers of time that you're working with mm-hmm. in, in your own field work, um, you know, to get back to this revival of, of what, what, what was once called heterodox practices, you know, we see this with the, the, the reemergence of al- Alevi mm-hmm. uh, spiritual practices, of course, in, in yes. a slightly different form, the form of Jemevis and whatnot today. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at the, 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 the revival of the Calf Festival is kind of part of this part trend of as well. Yeah. Um, so what Mustafa Olpak is doing is uh, he has a festival that's happened every year since 2006. And it's essentially a celebration of, of Afro-Turk identity mm-hmm. or Africanness that is uh, called the Calf Festival, but does not uh, involve the kind of re- the, the czar or the religious practices of, of the historical festival. It's uh, often takes place in one of the villages near uh, Tireb, Bayandur Odemish in Izmir's hinterland. And uh, it's a time where um, I think a few speeches are being made about the community. There's some discussion about, uh, you know, organization, identity, and uh, there's music. Mm -hmm. I believe um, African migrants uh, from the Istanbul African migrant community are involved in that as well, that they do some of the dancing. Uh, and then just a, a celebration, a, a, a reason to get together. I have a question with regards to the present situation and the mass uh, and mm. the large number of mm-hmm. the migrants from Africa to yeah, right. You just uh, mentioned to the Middle yeah. East in in a sense, and uh, about the new African community that we have in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you find any kind of relationship between these communities, or can they help each other, or uh, is or you find it otherwise? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Uh, that's a really interesting question, and, and I've been wondering the same uh, myself. Uh, another colleague has has dealt uh, more specifically on this, the the newcomers, the new Africans coming to Izmir, uh, Ezgi Chakmak. Uh, so I would I would refer you to her work, uh, but in Izmir specifically, um, I've been to Mustafa Olpak's community association building. And uh, the first time I was there, there was uh, uh, some Ugandans just uh, using it as their social space as well. And there are students at uh, the local uh, Ege University. And uh, I don't know how they found uh, Mustafa's uh, association, but um, it is interesting that there's a connection. And indeed, when you're, when you're in his... Um, uh, office space. The walls are decorated with kind of Kenyan uh, textiles and imagery from from East Africa. Um, it is true, you know. In my my first couple times going to Turkey in the in the mid two uh, thousands, I wasn't very aware of of the African uh, migrants coming to the country, and I think you see them now everywhere, uh, particularly in the street selling watches, selling sunglasses, goods uh, to tourists. And uh, just like Istanbul, where you probably have seen them, uh, they're in Izmir as well. Um, And I think there's been times in Izmir where I describe my research uh, to people and immediately they think I'm researching this new community. Yeah. But in fact, I'm uh, researching the historical one, uh, which... Uh, they're often not aware of, uh, mm-hmm. which is which kind of reflects that silence of the 20th century. 
Uh, that's very interesting. I mean, I've had kind of a anecdotal experience with this in my own life living in Istanbul. I, I've always re- tended to take up rev- residence in the Feriköy, Kurtulush neighborhoods, which at one t- point during the late Ottoman period were, of course, destinations for migrants, uh, especially Greek and Armenian migrants mm-hmm. coming to Istanbul to make their fortune, sort of an emergent middle-class community. And of course, after those communities, uh, particularly the Greeks, um, kind of disappeared from that region from the eight, 1950s onwards, um, new migrants, Kurdish migrants, uh, mm-hmm. started to come yeah. to the area. And then later, you see that Iraqi and Syrian refugees were coming there. And indeed, um, in in that neighborhood, particularly down in uh, Feriköy, Dolapdere, in these regions, you have this large uh, uh, migrant community of Nigerians, Cameroonians. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of, I, I used to go to this kind of, you might call it an old man bar in the neighborhood okay. where, <laughs> where kind of guys would go to watch <laughs> soccer, a, a rather dour mm-hmm. and depressing kind of bar, but there would always be a couple tables of um, African migrants yeah. uh, living in Istanbul, mm-hmm. having, having usually a lot more fun than the old men watching soccer mm-hmm. at the bar. And it was sort of a, a fixture in, um, in the present day um, cultural life of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I imagine in Istanbul, things are magnified than they are a lot more than than in Izmir, but uh, indeed, uh, that's the case. But interestingly, uh, where the the new uh, wave of of African migrants uh, in Izmir settled around the uh, historical train station in Basmane region, Mm -hmm. uh, part of the city, whereas the uh, historical uh, enslaved and emancipated Africans lived atop Kadife Kale. And that neighborhood uh, since uh, the 1980s has become the home to uh, Kurds fleeing uh, uh, war and conflicts in southeastern Turkey and has been just as it was uh, when Africans were living there uh, and other kind of refugees come into the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century it still remains a largely marginalized part of the city. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of overlapping uh, layers of, of migration, people, yeah. forced migration. People have no choice but to go there and they're mm-hmm. living there. And it's great to bring the discussion of, you know, the history of slavery into this larger mm-hmm. uh, question of migration, as I, I, I'm yeah. sure you do in some of your work. It's inevitable when working on a place like Izmir. Definitely. Uh, I'm constantly thinking about it. Uh, uh you know, just down from from Kadife Kale, there is a neighborhood called uh, Tatar Mahalesi or, mm-hmm. or Tatar neighborhood, and they there formed their own community, uh, fleeing the Russian Empire. Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's sure. different little pockets throughout this one part of the city, and I should say that uh, this part of the city is currently undergoing um, what is euphemistically called urban renewal. Right. Uh, also being experienced in, in Istanbul and all the other major cities in, in Turkey. The entire world. Uh, <laughs> where uh, these people, uh, you know, using arguments based on, on public health or the kind of the shoddy construction of their houses are uh, evicted. Yep. Uh, their buildings are, are bulldozed where they've lived their whole lives and even maybe historically. Yep. And uh, they are relocated to large apartment blocks on the outskirts of the city. Um, And in its place, uh, trees have been planted atop uh, Kadefe Kale, and they're beginning to uh, brand it as a kind of uh, uh, ancient Greek and Roman, you know, site. Mm. Uh, It's interesting to think about the, you know, in in the U.S., the politics of urban transformation are certainly intertwined with uh, mm -hmm. the issue of race. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about... um, 
these questions in Turkey also as being uh, related to the question of race and ethnicity. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with uh, Sarah Sadarian talking to Dr. Michael Ferguson about his research on the uh, African diaspora communities in the late Ottoman Izmir. Sarah, um, I wanted to ask you because um, I know that uh, last semester you'd offer, you offered a class here at Yale University on the subject of race and ethnicity um, uh, and, and citizenship. Uh, right. in the Middle East. And certainly we've already established some parallels between uh, the legacy of the African slave trade in the Ottoman Empire uh, and the legacy of that slave trade uh, and those diasporas uh, in Iran as well. I was wondering if you might you know, reflect on um, uh, some of these issues um, uh, with regard to Iran and, and ask you if, if we can talk about uh, an African diaspora of the Middle East uh, that is, a, that is a, the heritage of the uh, Ottoman and, uh, you know, Safavid and Qajar realms that is kind of, um, uh, to some extent, shared and, and might be thought of as somewhat distinct from some of the other um, uh, African diasporas that we know throughout the world, whether in the Atlantic or, or otherwise. What I heard about the Ottoman Empire was really interesting because I found lots of similarities. And I can say the presence of Africans in the Middle East uh, would be the same in lots of the areas uh, from the slavery time up to present. Uh, what interests me about the subject is about the concept of citizenship and mm. how much these communities recognize themselves as Africans rather than Iranians or Turkish or other nationalities. Uh, when I refer to Iranian uh, Afri- Afro-Iranian community, I can see that uh, they they would be happy to recognize themselves as Iranian, and some of them don't even like the new word that is invented nowadays. It's very recent that they we call them Afro-Iranians. Mm-hmm. But uh, in some senses, when you go back to the community, you can see lots of traces of their origins. About They even talk about uh, the markets that n- it, nowadays is a kind of... Uh, daily market but at the time it was a slavery market Mm. and uh, you can find the traces in music and as I said in the language or rituals and everything but again yet again uh, they realize uh, that they they are a part of the bigger community and it's I believe that it's very uh, interesting to see that this is a part of Iranian society and they recognize themselves as Iranian. So I my question is how much the Iranian states during the time recognized these uh, communities as a part of Iran and how much uh, did they spend about the, the communities or cared about 
these communities? I mean, that's a fascinating question. I know our, our friend over at the Aja Media Collective, Bita Barulizade, would certainly be able to tell us more about that. We'll, we'll give a shout out to her. I know she's off working on her research right now as we speak. Um, I have a question for you, uh, Sahar. Um, the Afro-Iranians, if we can call them that, they're located, you know, there's there's a concentration in one particular part of the country. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Okay. And what, what, what part is that again? It's in the south of Iran. It's close to the Persian Gulf. So, okay. Yeah. Um, the reason I ask is um, something that's happened many times uh, while doing field work in Izmir is uh, I explain to people my research and what I'm what I'm doing. And they'll give me the answer that there is no uh, Africans in Izmir and there was no slavery in the Ottoman Empire. I see. Um, is, there, is there a similar sentiment uh, in, in that part of the country or more sort generally? Sort of an amnesia <laughs> regarding mm-hmm. the history of slavery. Yeah, I can answer this question from two sides of the story. If you go Inside these communities, they have a very kind of oral history about their background and they are familiar with the situation that their ancestors Mm. were slaves, brought here and sold uh, in the area and so forth. And uh, on the other side, you can see Iranians, not from that part of Iran, Mm -hmm. who are totally ignorant about the story and history and they don't even many of Iranians don't even know that we have African Iranians Mm -hmm. in that area so that's that's a kind of very uh, as you mentioned amnesia about this part of the history and I I want to just use this opportunity to mention the reason they are just for uh, concentrated in that area because beforehand uh, as slaves, Africans were in all part of parts of Iran. Mm-hmm. But later, after the abolition, they had this area as a part. Uh, they, actually, the, the government forced them to go to the huh. south mm-hmm. and yeah. to live there. And some of them even were transferred to Masqat. Mm-hmm. Oman. Ah. Yeah, they, they were transferred mm-hmm. to Masqat and uh, it was a kind of area around the Persian Gulf. That mm-hmm. is why uh, African community of Iranians live in that mm-hmm. special part of the country and not all over the yeah, country. It, so it does seem then that, you know, just like uh, elsewhere in the African diaspora, these these people were moved uh, to a particular part of the country. Yes. And that, that happened with... with uh, you mean post-emancipation? Post-emancipation, uh, you know, the question, the state asks the question, like, what are we going to do with these people? Yep. We're going to put them where we need them, not necessarily yeah. where they should be or or want to be. Uh, and that is, I think, why there's a concentration developing in Izmir. Um, so that's interesting that there is a parallel there. Right. And it speaks to the, the long legacy uh, of, of slavery, which never ends at the moment of emancipation in mm-hmm. some way. Um, slavery, if defined by anything, it's it's defined by a lack of control over one's own destiny, right? And mm-hmm. it, that's kind of a something that uh, sticks with these communities, unfortunately, to some extent, well after the the institution itself has been abolished. Yeah, as as I said, there's uh, some work done by uh, Hakan Erdem, who's found uh, who's found these documents where the. Uh, emancipated Africans were forcefully married and then settled yeah. in the villages outside of Izmir. So even though they are in theory free at that moment, right. they, they have no choice in their life uh, direction. 
Well, Mike, this has been such a, a fascinating conversation, I'm sure, for our listeners mm-hmm. in Turkey who, who, who maybe are somewhat aware of this subject but have never really understood yeah. how, how integrated the history of the African diaspora in Turkey really yeah. truly is into the larger history uh, of modern Turkey. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this has opened up all kinds of doors and questions. And I, and I really want to thank you as well as uh, Sorar for coming on the podcast today mm-hmm. um, and sharing this fascinating research uh, and, and these, these perspectives uh, with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Chris, for the opportunity. And thank you, Sorar, for, for being here and, and having such a, such a fruitful discussion. Yeah, I thank you too, and I learned a lot, and it's it's really interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to thank our listeners and remind them that if they too are, have learned a lot and want to find out more, they can visit our website ottomanhistorypodcast.com for a complete bibliography that'll give you some um, point you in some directions of the ongoing work of, of Mike Ferguson, as well as uh, some of the other authors mentioned in this episode. That's a great place to leave your comments and questions. Get in touch with our Facebook community now, probably over twenty-two thousand uh, followers and growing. Um, get the discussion going on Facebook and get in touch with this great global audience following um, our, our continued episodes in our ministry podcast. That's all for this episode. Thanks one last time for tuning in. I want to invite you all to join in next time. And until then, take care.